so I think, I think you all know um, I teach, uh, I'm teaching this class um, at Loyola this semester, uh, these 28 poor freshmen, please pray for them, um, who are being introduced to theology by me. Um, and uh, in preparation for the election, I had them read some of John Witherspoon's sermon, The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men. We talked some about the uh, election, and uh, uh, we spent some time reading Romans 13. And basically, uh, where all that cashes out is that no matter who's president, Jesus is Lord, which I think is a tremendously comforting thing. Um, and is the sort of thing we need to keep in mind whether we like the person who's president or whether we don't, whether we like the person who's governor or whether we don't, uh, whether we like the way elections turned out or whether we wish we had had some other choices. It doesn't matter who's president, Jesus is still Lord. And we are commanded in Scripture to offer prayers for kings and all those in authority. And so that's what we do. And we do that, again, whether we are fond of the person who is in office or not. That's just what we do. And I pointed out to them that while it doesn't seem all that unusual for us to want to do that now, at the time Paul wrote that, he was telling people to pray for those in authority like the people who were taking their friends and putting them up on crosses and lighting them on fire. Um, so if Paul can tell people to pray for Caesar, who's doing all kinds of wicked and detestable things persecuting the church, then certainly we can all be praying for uh, our leaders. Thus endeth that. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we are talking about marriage Paul has a lot to say to us in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's come at it from a, ne- a different angle. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would. 1 Thessalonians, that's the book that comes before 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 4 is the one that comes after chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians, incidentally, probably the earliest of the New Testament documents. It's probably the New Testament document that was written the first um, and then Second Thessalonians is probably written is probably the second oldest because it seems to have been written a few weeks later um, after Paul found out that they didn 't quite understand all that he was trying to say in First Thessalonians, so he had to sort a few things out. But in First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, "Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you." And the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you be holy, that you avoid sexual immorality, that each of you learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter... No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 
Therefore, he who rejects this instruction rejects not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, as for brotherly love, we don't need to write. You, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Here, what Paul is describing to this young church that he really didn't get a whole lot of time with is the idea of living a life that is holy and honorable. And he sets up the life that is holy and honorable in opposition to the kind of life that is characterized by sexual immorality, by passionate lust like that known among their pagan neighbors and probably among themselves during their lives as fully enthusiastic participants in the nature of Gentile life in the first century in the Roman Empire. It should be clear that when Paul says to the Thessalonians, it's God's will that you be sanctified, that you avoid sexual immorality, that you learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust. What he's not saying there is what I think the many medieval scholars took him to be saying there, which is that what we're called to do is to strictly engage in the rational faculties. We are to transcend any sense of passion or emotion and we should be able to control all things by our minds, by our wills. I think Paul would find that to be a strange thing, knowing as he does the reality of human emotion, the reality of passion. Passion itself is not a bad thing. What's bad is passionate lust. What's bad is sexual immorality that is driven by those kinds of passions. Jesus talked about lust as well back in Matthew in chapter 5, a commonly cited passage. And Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, Origen, the great biblical scholar of the third century and the church father, took this passage quite literally, castrated himself, regretted it later. This may be one of the reasons Origen developed so enthusiastically the allegorical method of interpretation later on. But what Jesus says, and this, this is, is essential to understand, what Jesus does not say is that anyone who looks at a woman and finds her attractive has committed adultery with her heart. The translation in the, the old NIV, who looks at a woman, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, it doesn't really convey fully what Jesus is saying here. There's a purpose of quality to the behavior Jesus is describing. Jesus is saying anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting after her 
has committed adultery with her in his heart. What he's, he's not saying that noticing somebody is attractive is inherently sinful. What, what is sinful is dwelling on that and fantasizing based on that and, and doing anything with that notice other than giving thanks to God that he has made this woman beautiful and has made her to be a joy to the person that he has put her with. So what we see looking at both 1 Thessalonians and Matthew 5 is that sexual holiness is, is a matter of will. It is a matter of choosing what we do with the feelings that we have, with the things we notice and experience. But sexual holiness is also a matter of habit. Paul in 1 Thessalonians is talking about developing the kinds of, of habits of life that will enable us to please God and to do them more and more. It's, it's a matter of, of context. Sexual holiness is a matter of using our bodies and, and controlling them in a way that is honorable. There are times and places when it's appropriate to be affectionate with your spouse. I, I just read an article that uh, they, they've done extensive surveys and things that are okay to do at concerts are to yell out song requests, uh, to you know have some public display of affection is fine at a concert. Um, the worst thing they say at a concert is standing up when people behind you are sitting down, to which I say the worst thing at a rock concert is sitting down when you should be standing up for awesome music. But, uh, but it, you know, the, the authors of this study were surprised that people were as accepting as they are of public displays of affection, which, you know, depending on the concert, if you go to the symphony, maybe that may not go over so well. Um, in, in some churches, it's perfectly appropriate for spouses to kiss each other, um, maybe not at a funeral. Um, but, but, but these expressions have to be honorable. That is to say, they have to be done in a way that makes sense in the cultural context you're in. Sexual holiness is a matter of respect. We should not miss that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that no one should wrong his brother or, or sister in any way by this. Paul is concerned for the integrity not only of each person, not only of each person as made in God's image and as the temple of the living God, but of the body of Christ. He wants us to exercise our sexuality in a way that, that honors and respects our brothers and sisters, that doesn't take advantage of them. And fundamentally, sexual holiness is a matter of identity. It has to do with expressing sexuality according to the state that God has you in. Beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, now I'm going to address the matters you wrote about, quoting, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. As we said last week, when Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, he's probably not saying something that ought to be taken as, as something to directly apply in every situation, for one thing. Shortly thereafter, he tells men who are married to fulfill their marital duty to their wife. Now, he's probably quoting a slogan of the Corinthians, may well have been something that Paul himself had said in a different context, that they were taking out of context and throwing into absolutely the wrong place. He says, no, that because there's so much porneia, so much sexual immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. And the husband must fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone. It belongs to her husband as well. And in the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but it belongs also to his wife. So don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What, what Paul is saying here is that there are people who simply need to be married. And, and he says if you need to be married in order to live in a way that is holy and honorable, in order to glorify God with your sexuality, then, then be married. And, and if you're married, be married. So if, if you're married, the expectation is that you're going to be intimate with your spouse. That's not just a societal expectation. That's your spouse's right to, to expect that. It, in fact, Paul says it's fraud if you get married and then you withhold yourself from your spouse. He says, no, you can, yes, go through a time of, of fasting or go through a time of discipline in order to devote yourselves to prayer, but, but that should be a temporary thing. It has to be by mutual consent, and, and it has to be something that has an end date because otherwise Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, he's not saying that there's something in, inherently wrong with needing to be sexually intimate with somebody. He's saying if you recognize that that's what you're like, then put yourself in a situation where you can fulfill that in a way that honors God. Now, Paul says, I'm saying this is a concession. I'm not commanding everybody to go out and get married. In fact, Paul says, you know, if, if I had my brothers, everybody would be single just like I am. But each person has his own gift from God. One's got this gift, another's got that gift. Live in the life that God called you to. So to the unmarried and the widows, Paul says, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. If, if you're not married and you don't feel like you have to get married, maybe that's because you've experienced marriage and you know you can live without that. Maybe it's because you've gotten older and you don't feel the same sense of, of urgency that you used to. If you don't need to be married, Paul says, don't be married. But if you cannot control yourself, then get married. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So to the married, I give this command, and not I but the Lord. And when Paul says, not I but the Lord, he's saying, look, I'm, I am, I'm telling you what Jesus said. This is not me making this up. This is what Jesus said. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does then she ought to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul, of course, is, is referencing what Jesus said. Uh, we find it in Mark 10, when Jesus is disputing with the Pharisees over divorce. And, and he says, you know, because your hearts were hard, Moses permitted you to write a certificate of divorce. But the fact is that God's ideal from the beginning of creation was having made male and female, having made a man and woman, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He will cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. And what man, God has joined together, man is not to separate. 
The disciples followed up with him and asking in the house, he says, look, anybody who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, then she commits adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, in this passage, then the disciples say, shoot, if this is the deal, you're better off not to marry. And Jesus says, you may be on to something. You know, not everybody can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. Some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. Others have renounced marriage or made themselves eunuch, literally, because the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So the one who is going to be single, is going to be celibate, should live that way. And the one who is married should live that way. Fundamentally for Paul, there are two categories of people. There are people who are married and people who are not married. People who are married should live like they're married. People who are not married should live like they're not married. And I think one of the reasons we can see the wisdom of this is when we just think about how difficult those liminal states are, the states of sort of not yet being married, but also not really being unmarried. You think about somebody who's engaged. And in a lot of ways, I think of engagement as purgatory, right? I mean, you're, you're moving towards something that's good, but it sucks while you're going through it, right? When you're engaged, you have to deal with a whole lot of the nonsense and the complexity and the difficulty and the work that comes with marriage, but if you're following God's teaching, you're not enjoying many of the blessings that come with marriage. We see this too in the case of people who are separated or trying to determine whether they're going to be able to stay married. They're married, technically, but they're not living like they're married. It's a very hard place to be. It's uncomfortable. I think that metaphor we used in looking at 1 Corinthians 6 of the end zones is is good to bear in mind that the, the play is not just supposed to be in the field. You are supposed to play to get into the end zone, whichever end zone God has for you. Now, I should be clear, and this is especially important for those of us coming from more uh, conservative, uh, traditional backgrounds, that when Paul says a wife must not separate from her husband, when Jesus says anyone who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, commits adultery, yes, they mean that. But, but they mean that in the context of uh, commonly held understandings that there would be some exceptions to the broad rule. My favorite illustration of this comes from a retreat center I used to go to. This retreat center had a very delicate septic system. And so above the toilet in the guest house was a sign that said, please do not place anything other than the provided toilet tissue into the toilet. Obviously, you can't use the toilet as a toilet if the only thing you're putting in there is one-ply Scott tissue. What they mean is don't put any other things other than what would come with the tissue into the toilet. Now, everybody knows that. They didn't have to put a little addendum on there and say, attention fundamentalists, you can use this 
Everybody knew it. And likewise, in the first century, in both Jewish and Greco-Roman law, it was understood that there were cases in which divorce was appropriate. Uh, one scholar has suggested that the, the, the broad concept that helps us to understand this is, the, is that of neglect, right? So the, the most obvious case is that a woman who has died is no longer her husband's wife, right? If a husband is married to a woman and she dies, he's not married to her anymore. He's free to marry somebody else because there's no longer a relationship. If you think of a relationship as two people holding on to the same rope, if one person's no longer there because they're dead, then the other person isn't in relationship with her. He's just standing there holding a piece of rope, which is kind of dumb. Nobody would disagree with that. Nobody would say, no, you're still married. No, if, if the person dies, you're free to marry again. But there are other situations where a spouse would be neglected. If a spouse was not receiving that which is referred to as the marital marital duty of the other spouse, if a spouse is being neglected sexually by the other spouse, that's understood to be abandonment. If a spouse is physically not there, that's abandonment. If a spouse is not providing for the needs of the other spouse, that's abandonment. And that was understood in Jewish and Greco-Roman law as solid and and really uh, uncontroversial grounds for divorce. Jesus mentions adultery in particular. The idea there being that that marriages are, are living things. They can they can die from neglect. They can also be killed. And so we might also look at addiction or abuse as things that will lead a marriage to be either killed or to die of neglect. But marriages are living things. And just as a guitar string only makes a sound when it is held in tension between the two ends of the instrument, a marriage is only a living thing if there are two people who are committed to it, if there are two people who are sustaining it. Otherwise, you're just one person holding on to one end of a rope. Otherwise, a guitar string is just a piece of wire on a box. Marriages are living things. They can be killed. They can die of neglect. They can also be resurrected. Sometimes. If everybody involved is on board with that. But that only works if both of the spouses are committed to making that marriage work. In that case, probably would be more accurate to say that the marriage is still a marriage. There just was a very weakly glowing ember stuck there in the middle of the fire that can be once again fanned into flame. But sometimes the fire is dead. Sometimes it's been dead because stuff's been dumped on it to smother it. Sometimes it's dead because it hasn't been fed, but it sometimes is dead. And what we do with dead things is we give them a decent burial. We don't prop them up and act like they're alive. 
there are reasons for those who are technically married to recognize and to ask others to recognize that even though on paper they are married, the fact is they're really unmarried. And there are people who are technically unmarried but are living like they're married, in which case they ought to figure out how to make that be the case for them. A challenge for all of us is to live into and to live out the states that God has called us to. Those of us who are married, to live like we're married. Those of us who are not married, to live like we're not married. Not to constantly be looking over the fence to see the greener grass. It's not uncommon for people who are not married to wish they were married, and it's not uncommon for people who are married to wish they were not married, or at least not married to the person they're married to. You can ask Mary all about that. It's been an especially good week for her. This is really, this is, honestly, this is a hard week for me to be preaching on this. I feel like I've, I've been a very selfish person this week in a lot of ways. And so this is something that is a challenge to live into and to grow into. And even after 20 years, I still keep messing it up. But, but I want to be faithful to grow into this calling that I have. We're married or we're not married. If we're married, we live like we're married. If we're not married, we live like we're not married. Amen.